Stay hungry, stay foolish. Creating true change is never easy. Most startups don't survive. Most community groups never get beyond small local actions. Even when a spark catches fire and protesters swarm the streets, it often seems to fizzle out almost as fast as it started. The status quo is almost by definition well entrenched and never gives up without a fight. To truly change the world, or even just a little corner of it, you don't need a charismatic leader or a catchy slogan. What you need is a cascade. Small groups that are loosely connected, but united by a common purpose. We welcome back, for the third time, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and innovation advisor and author of Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change, Greg Sattel. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Aiden. Always love to be here. It's great to have you back, man. And we were just talking there before the show started. Two years since we had you on with Cascades. Two years have passed. I know last year was a mess and lots of things were all over the place. But you've been working deeply with organizations. And I thought what we do is usually I focus on the book as we did the last time. But this time, it's really cascades in practice. What have you been finding with the organizations you've been working with? I thought that'd be very useful to see what is is like, what kind of resistance they're facing, what kind of principles they're finding are working, etc. So let's just do that. I've learned so much since cascades came out. First of all, first thing I've learned is that uh, there's an, an entire change management industry that nobody thinks works. <laughs> when you talk to anybody, everybody says it never, it, it doesn't work. And, and the, the data that comes, McKinsey has a great study that, that shows about three quarters of transformation efforts fail. And that's such an enormous problem. And and one piece of data that I came across over since the book came out was is that before uh, 1975, and and this data is based on the United States, but I, I think it's it's a fair bet. It's pretty similar throughout the develop uh, developed world. That before 1975, more than 80 percent of uh, corporate assets or tangible assets. So these were things like factories and equipment and real estate, things you could touch. But today that has flipped. uh, And by 2015, more than 80% of corporate assets are tangible or intangible assets. So things like licenses and patents and intellectual property and know-how and processes and all these things. So when change management first arose in the early 1980s, it was designed for that first type of change, a a strategic initiative uh, involving some kind of tangible asset, buying new equipment, building a factory, launching a new product line that was made at the top of the organization. And change management was designed to help bring the rest of the organization along. Not saying we're going in this new direction, get with the program, but explaining why so that people could embrace that change and feel uh, uh, that they were participating in that change. 
So there was all sorts of, uh, I, so uh, traditional change management was mainly focused on communication, creating this sense of urgency about the change, hearing out people's objections and, and communicating why this change would be a good one with the underlying assumption that uh, once people understood the change, they would embrace it. The truth was they would they couldn't do much about it anyway, right? I mean, I mean, if the boss wants to build a factory, unless you're going to chain yourself to the bulldozer or something, <laughs> you're gonna, the boss is going to build a factory, right? Or launch a new product line or buy new equipment, whatever it is. But today, when most of our assets are intangible assets, and the types of changes we talk about today are changes in behavior in our mental models, what we think, how we act, we have an enormous amount of ability to resist that and often do. And one of the most fascinating things I found is the amount of, uh, the amount of, of resistance we're seeing to change initiatives in, within organizations, things like, uh, agile, right? Uh, Agile development or DEI, diversity, inclusion, equity initiatives, um, digital transformations, uh, AI, uh, automation, all of these things. We are seeing resistance that is no less passionate and no less staunch than we saw with social movements and political revolutions. Uh, people get so, and you would think, I mean, such deep seated, uh, almost hatred and, and, and what we found, and to be honest, I was really, because before when I drove transformations, it was mostly, I was running the organization. So I didn't, nobody would, nobody would say it. I don't think, I'm sure it was there, but nobody would say it to me. Um, and I was somewhat aware of it. But what we found is any change, if it, it, and this is true, whether it's a political revolution, whether it's a social movement, whether it's an organizational transformation, any change, when you're at, if it is an important change and has potential for impact, it, uh, there are going to be some people who hate that change. And will work to undermine it in ways that are dishonest, underhanded, and deceptive. And that has to be your primary uh, uh, design uh, constraint. And I'll tell you what, and let me let me ask you if, if this sounds familiar. Because this is what we're, we see time and time again. It's almost, you could almost set your watch by this pattern. Right. So, Aiden, uh, tell me if you've ever seen this happen. So the someone in the C-suite, the CEO or, 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 or somebody at the very, very top of an organization has an idea for a change initiative. Right. Usually they appoint somebody outside, usually a high potential employee, someone on the rise, a real up and comer to lead this change initiative. Now, of course, that person is sees this as a real, you know, this could be a real boost to their career, 
And they take it on. They're given a budget. They're given executive uh, sponsorship. And they're told to that they have the full backing of the board and they should go full steam ahead. What they don't know is that there's 12 people behind them saying that poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and within six months, usually within six months, they began to realize that they are being undermined in ways that are truly deceptive um, and, and dishonest. And their initiative, which they were trying, they had thought was supposed to be full speed ahead, is now bogged down. And that rock solid executive sponsorship has begun to dissipate. And, uh, and those, this, you know, bright eyed, you know, uh, boy or girl is, is now so not so bright eyed anymore. And <laughs> the sort of bloom is off the rose. And that, you know, mentor or, or or those that executive sponsor who was egging them on is now not so sure about them, and they're in real trouble. What was supposed to be a boom to their career now has the potential to kill it. Unfortunately, that's when they come to us, and that's and 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 we have uh, and I'll be honest, we can't save all of them, right? Uh, some we do. Uh, and I would say most we do, but some at that point are too far gone. So uh, it, it would be nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling. I'm smiling because you basically described a couple of the careers. I've had. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's it, it, it's it's amazing. It's like time and time again. Mm. Um, so what we do. And what we've been able to do with, and, and let me go through just so people can understand why that happens. There's a case I really love, and I, I'm going to talk about two cases, uh, but uh, there's a case I really love with, and I talk about it in the book, uh, about Experian and their cloud transformation. And this is now complete. It wasn't when the book was written, but they... Uh, uh, so a new CIO came in, a guy named Barry Libinson, who recently retired in his 50s, uh, got married. So we can say whatever we want about Barry. <laughs> uh, it, he, it obviously uh, worked then. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he was also, I think, uh, employee like 150 at, at uh, Oracle or something. Bravo, so. Barry, bravo, my friend. Yeah, 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 Barry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When when uh, so when my wife throws me out, I think I'm gonna go live with Barry. <laughs> anyway, Barry comes in as CIO, and uh, and he goes out to his uh, to his customers as as a lot of um, biz leaders do. They devote their their first couple of months to a listening tour. It's like the one time you can do it anyway. And all his all his customers, Experian is of course the big credit bureau and big data company. All his customers, they were all asking for the same thing. They were all asking for, um, they were all asking for real time access to data instead of sort of those those batch released uh, credit reports. They wanted real time access to data that they could. Uh, uh, that they could run through their own own models. Now, uh, Barry, being a and you know 
CTO or CIO, uh, a technology guy, uh, knew that in order to deliver that, he would have to shift from the from an on-premise architecture to the cloud. And he also knew in order to shift from on-premise to the cloud, he was going to have to change how they uh, changed how they developed projects from waterfall to, to agile. Okay, good enough. He's got his plan. But Barry, like you and I, you know, is, is sort of, you know, got some war wounds. So he knew that he couldn't even as CIO, and this is really, really important. This is a mark of a great leader. He knew he could not just issue a mandate because uh, uh, what looked like, you know, a pretty straightforward business transformation. Okay, switch the, from uh, switch from from uh, batch to to you know real time access to data. Uh, seems you know change your customer offer, switch your business model. Uh, was actually three transformations on top of each other. You had the, the the business transformation, which the customers were asking for. You had the technology transformation, which was uh, 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 on-premise to, to cloud. And you had the uh, skills-based transformation from waterfall to agile, each stacked on top of each other. And people had reasons to hate each of these. For the business transformation, people were worried that they would lose control of their business model. Not an unreasonable, uh, 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 not an unreasonable concern. Experian made a lot of money for a lot of years. Switching that business model made people nervous. In in uh, for the technology transformation, people were worried about cybersecurity. Again, not an unreasonable concern, especially since while they were undergoing this transformation, one of their key competitors, Equifax, had had a massive data breach, one of the biggest of the decade. And for the skills-based transformation, people would say that, uh, you know, I know my job. I've been, you know, I, I take pride in my job I, and I think I do a good job. And I don't like being told, uh, you know, now you're telling me to do it a completely different way that I don't agree with. Uh, so there was no shortage of ways this could go sideways, but because he treated it like a a uh, like a more like a social movement than a, a a typical corporate transformation, he was able to achieve that transformation in uh, in less than three years, and then embark on a new one uh, w with respect to artificial intelligence. I would like to tell you another quick case, just really quickly, that wasn't uh, included in the book. And that's because it didn't exist. There was three guys, uh, unlike Barry, these were sort of middle managers at Procter & Gamble in the research organization who thought, you know, Procter & Gamble is an, you know, old, old, or, you know, it's been around for more than, well over a hundred years. So they've accumulated all these processes, a lot of which are very inefficient. Uh, you know, for instance, at, you know, at like a loading dock, they'll still be using paper. Uh, so they said, you know, we think we can vastly increase the efficiency of the way the company works just by streamlining processes. And so what they did was they uh, 
they went and they picked one process that was a bottleneck. It took two to three weeks to achieve. And they worked on it for months. I think eight or nine months it took them. And they got it down to two to three hours. And it was like a big success in the, in the context of the book. We would say it was a keystone change. And they got a big award. And then they said, we want to create a movement uh, to, uh, to, to sort of spread this throughout the research organization, hopefully th throughout Procter & Gamble. So this is something they were really, really passionate about. Unlike Barry, they weren't at the top of the organization. Uh, they did have a, another sort of an older guy who, who was sort of uh, mentoring them. Just as this was going on, Cascades came out. And they contacted me, they read Cascades, uh, and I sort of informally uh, advised them a bit. And within 18 months, they had a movement of 2,500 people, uh, I think more than six re innovation centers throughout the world. Um, and I think 10,000 people uh, get their newsletter. Uh, in this movement for process improvement within Procter and & Gamble. And, and the last I talked to them, they're actually expanding it outside the research organization to the greater, uh, 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 to, to uh, Procter & Gamble at large. So, and since they didn't pay me for this, I can talk about it all I <laughs> Well, they might have informed Cascades part two, man. But there's so much in that couple of things that I'd love to, to share. When you think about what you said at the very top, organizations built on an industrial revolution of old was essentially mechanical in, in our mental processes as well. And therefore, the shift we're seeing is to more humanic mental processes, as you mentioned, mental models need to change. I was thinking then, the person at the top, the Barry's and these three guys from P&G, they need Most to three guys were in the middle. Yeah, which is very difficult. Very difficult. Which is what I. But that's. But that's what, what was interesting. What I'm interesting. Sorry to cut you off. Interesting about what I found is that um, in a lot of cases we find the guys at the middle are better mm. and and are more successful than the guys at the top because the guys at the top believe that they can mandate change, where the guys in the middle. So much of what we found is understanding that resistance is there. When I was in the Orange Revolution and we're standing outside and it's cold and you're worried about getting shot, the idea that someone might oppose this idea wasn't a hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> understood that. Um, but you take you know, someone who's powerful in an organization and uh, they see a change that they think the organization needs to make, they want to snap their fingers. Let's get it done, you know, and 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 that's not going to work. It reminds me, Clayton Christensen used to say that, that, that leaders in organizations think they run the organization, but it's the middle management. And that's where I found Cascades so powerful. I was going to say, Cascades is a groundbreaking book. And I feel, I feel it's going to grow and grow. I feel people are more and more going to realize that you need to win the hearts and minds because 
just because it makes sense on an Excel sheet doesn't mean that people are going to make those changes. And as you talk about regularly, the status quo by its very nature is going to resist. So those people who have climbed to the top based on the past are going to resist a possible shift to the future, just like the shift to the cloud. But as you're talking about there, it's it's multiple transformations at once. And that's often why the 75% of transformations fail. Act on top of each other, yeah. yeah. And, and in a talent economy, everybody's got to vote. Right. I mean, there was just a, something in the uh, it was just a story about a researcher rejecting a grant from Google because he didn't like uh, uh, the situation where the, the AI ethicists left. Um, he's got a vote. Right. I, I mean, people have a vote. You can't you can't mandate what people think or how they act or their behavior or anything like that. So. Um, you have to get you have to get it out there. Uh, another thing that's really interesting interesting that we found is um, and and I didn't quite realize this when I wrote the book, but we do this exercise so often. And in the book, we talk a, a lot about the importance of shared values, and uh, and that is true. Uh, and we found it even, even more in all of the organization, you know, all of these things, whether it's digital transformation, agile transformation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, whatever it is, you're going to find people, they might not voice it, but you're going to find people who resist it. And what's key is finding, uh, for instance, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, let me give you some examples for, with Agile, we find a lot of people feel that it's too process-driven. There's all these rules that seem strange. Um, with diversity, inclusion, equity, inclusion, people have issues around uh, uh, performance. They say, "Listen, I'm 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 paid, I'm compensated on, on performance, and uh, and and uh, you know, if 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 I do this D diversity and inclusion." Uh, and equity, uh, uh, if I, you know, I'm happy to jump on board, but if I don't make my numbers, uh, I'm still going to get fired, right? Um, same thing with digital transformation. Oh, where the thing doesn't work, whatever it is, we see this, and and some of it's actual sincere, and some of it is just stuff that's thrown up there. So what we find is it's really, really important to identify shared values. But here's what's interesting and so, so powerful. The way we, what we found, and I didn't realize this while I was writing the book, but I've, I've come to, to really realize this uh, in the work that we've been doing. The best way to, to identify those shared values is by listening to your opposition. So what we say is, oh, you don't understand. People are really against us. We say, okay, what do they say? Right? So so with, with agile transformation, when people say, they say, oh, well, they don't like all the rules and stuff like this. Um, so we say, okay, you, you really, so we need really need to focus on this human-centered aspects of it. With diversity and inclusion, what we find is that uh, there are some legitimate concerns with uh, discomfort. And what we what the research shows is that 
teams that are more diverse uh, tend to perform actually much better, but they feel like they're performing worse. They're not as confident. They're not because everything's being tested all the time. Teams that are more homogenous come to a, a, uh, a much, find it much easier to, to come to a, a consensus. They're all also much more likely to be wrong. So we need to, to focus on that, about the performance aspect and the need to embrace that discomfort and be upfront about it. What we find is when people say, oh, it's all going to be great and we're all going to sit around with Kumbaya and everybody's going to love it, that though you have to be, be straight about it. Um, and on and on, and it, it differs from, from situation to situation. But that simple act of saying, what do the people who hate this say? Yeah. And turning that around, uh, very much my favorite example of this is the uh, LGBTQ movement, which for decades was getting hammered every time they... Uh, Every, every time they, they made any kind of advancement, they'd get hammered politically with uh, family values and defensive marriage and all this stuff. And how did they win? We want the same things you want. We want to raise happy families. We want to live in committed relationships. So by understanding those uh, listening, not engaging, because that's not going to be an honest engagement. You don't want to engage with people who hate your idea. It's not a good uh, use of your time, but listening to them and then thinking about what uh, shared value are they giving voice to? Because they're trying to bring, convince a lot of the same people you are. And that is so powerful. It brings to mind, I was mentioning about the humanics, essentially the human skills. And we hear a lot about this more than ever before. And I don't think the dots have been connected. Why? And this is what I felt what your journey. So mapping innovation, brilliant bestseller, flying still off the shelves, the virtual shelves now. And then cascades has been a slower burn. But that reflects the industry that it's easier to do the mechanical change. But the social movement change takes longer. And the world's almost catching up to those. And that's why we hear the need for these storytelling skills, vision articulation, teamwork, collaboration. That's why they're so important. Now, that's why you see them in all the articles everywhere. You write about them regularly. That's why, because they're the environment in which the mechanical change can thrive. We also have to show that this change can work, which is the whole idea behind the Keystone change. Another thing we find that's very persuasive, we tell people, and when I go out and I talk to, to transformation and change uh, professionals, uh, I hear this all the time. People say, oh, you know, I went and I got them excited about the change, and then it kind of fizzled out. And I always say, look, the operative word is you got them excited about the change, meaning they weren't excited about the change already. You have to start you always have to stay within a majority. So in the beginning, that might be three people in a room of five. You can always expand a majority out. And you'll have to be careful that while you're in this majority, it doesn't become an echo chamber, that you're listening to people on, on the outside and, 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 and you're aware of them. And uh, But you need to start with that 
uh, small group, uh, you need to start with a keystone change that actually shows, for instance, with Barry Libinson at Experian, he didn't just jump to the cloud. He started with internal APIs, which were much, much lower risk, right? Because it, it, they weren't, you're, you're not opening your IT system out to the world. And, and, and that, he also created something, and this is what we call a co-optable resource. He created something called the, uh, the API Center of Excellence. So he said to people who were already enthusiastic about this change, he wasn't convincing anybody, right? But people who are already enthusiastic about this change, that we are going to give you help for free to achieve what you want to achieve which was these were people who were enthusiastic about creating cloud-based products. So once, so they, those people, he didn't start, start by convincing people. If, if you're going to, if you're going to base your transformation on your ability to convince people, anybody who's ever been married or had kids knows how difficult <laughs> it can be to convince even a single person. But if I'm sure if you're out with your wife and, and I know your wife always agrees with you, but let's imagine <laughs> no friction, have a disagreement uh, at, 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 at some point, uh, but imagine you're out with a group of eight people and, um, your wife is the only one that doesn't agree with you. I wouldn't guarantee it, but I say you, your chances are much, much better than if it's just you and her, right? Um, so, you, you, you know, you never want to bet your transformation on your ability to convince people. But then once you have people who are already enthusiastic and you're empowering them to succeed, and this is what Barry did, then he said, and, and same with the P&G guys. They went and found people who saw what they did. They, and they said, well, we'll help you. And in skills-based uh, transformation initiatives, something we find very, very often, they start off with workshops and they focus on the people who stay after. And they say, we are going to help you solve your problems for free. And once you have them and they're successful and they start telling their friends and and uh and, and people see them be successful and start joining in, then you start gaining momentum. Uh, with, with the experience, about a year into it, it started to become a performance issue. Well, you know, those guys over there, they're, they're doing pretty good. No one was being forced. It's not jammed, jammed you know, uh, uh, down anybody's throats. But by this time, this was a change that was working. It wasn't being forced on anybody, but it was working and it was expanding. And then finally, sort of in the last year, people either left or just told that you know, and by then it was it was sort of the dead enders. And, and, and that was and the majority of the organization was on board. This change was successful. What you don't want to do is say, I have this vision for change that hasn't been proven out and I want everybody to adopt it. Um, and if it doesn't work out, you're screwed and I'm just going to move on. You see me here nodding along like a nodding dog. So I'm not actually, I'm going to edit myself out so you don't see that. <laughs> it's not pleasant. But I, I say that because I'm sure so many of our listeners, who are those people you're talking about, those initiators of change or desired initiators of change are nodding, going, yeah, that happened to me, yeah, that happened to me. But I wanted to hone in on one thing. Bob Pittman, who was founder of MTV and CEO of iHeartMedia, he has a saying, what did the dissenter say? 
and he's always looking for what you're talking about. What what are the people who are against it saying? Because there's value in that. But I wanted to hone in on the, if you think of the diffusion of innovations, there's always the laggards. And what many change makers do is try to convince them. And you say, no, leave them behind and focus on those who are already on board. Can I just say you hit on something, right? That that is that's really amazed me. And and I'm so glad you brought that up because there's something about human nature that makes people want to run and convince the deepest skeptics. When in actuality, you want to stay away from those people, right? Uh, I mean, the, those people, like I said in the beginning, those people just want to undermine you. That's all they want. And they're not going to be honest. And that's not going to be an honest interaction. And it's just going to frustrate you and exhaust you. And it's not, maybe you can convert them, but I don't see what, how the value of converting those people is, how is that greater than the value of empowering somebody who's al already on board, right? <laughs> I don't get the the, the cost benefit. And, and it, it points to something else that, it, you know, I tell people. And people think I'm just trying to be funny or something like this. But I tell people all the time, I stole 90% of this book. I stole the first half from Duncan Watts. And I stole the second half from Sir Popovich and his work with, with political revolutions around the world. And Sir Joss stole most of those concepts from a guy named Gene Sharp, who's sort of the, the, uh, the, uh, Godfather of 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 nonviolent re resistance, and I and and I say that not because I don't have pride of authorship. I do. Uh, I might have stolen ninety percent of it, but that ten percent <laughs> took me you know, fifteen years of of really really hard work to to work out. The reason why I say I I tell people that this is stolen is these concepts. When you say. Oh, that happens. That sounds that that I've I've seen that happen. This stuff has been around for decades. Some of the tools we use in our workshop have been literally battle tested for decades, like the Spectrum of Allies or the Pillars of Support. You can Google them. Those are not my concepts, but they haven't been applied to organizations and corporations and institutions. They've been sort of stuck in this nonviolent activist world. Even a lot of the social activists have never heard of these things, which is why so many of these, uh, so much activism fails these days. Um, but these are time tried, battle tested. And one thing I, I, I always urge, I say, listen, you know, there's over a century of learning and experience about this stuff. Don't go and you don't have to, to, to take those, you know, you don't have to take those bullet wounds, right? Other people have taken them for you. Uh, and we can learn from this, uh, from these experiences. And, and, and we don't have to have this situation where 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever the percent of transformation fails. It's a vast waste of time and, and, and money and effort. Uh, insanity that, that we, we can do better. And you mentioned there, the 10% came from 15 years of scar tissue, but it's probably more 30 because it, it's taxing. This is taxing. And you know, I know it's one of the goals of your workshops and your work is to 
strive that people are not going through that as much. There's an easier way. But you mentioned there, because you gave me this great lens of understanding a movement in an organization is almost like a revolution. It, it is, really. And and you gratefully, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to you for, for writing a, a for, uh, an endorsement for my book. And you know from that, I, I focused on nature because I was going, nature does the exact same thing. There's resistors in nature. And one of the interesting ones I didn't put in the book was if you put a piece of information like a, a slice of apple in a room and release ants into it, 80% will go towards that piece of apple and test it out. 20% are the explorers and they'll go and check out maybe there's a strawberry or maybe I won't go to the apple in case it's poisoned and it's the, the, the demise of the species. But I always think about the evolutionary pressure that's required for, 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 for evolution, to, to, to survival of the species. It's the exact same in organizations. In nature, there's resistors. Those resistors die off like they do from organizations. Like you said, the laggards are either moved on or, you know, put into frustrating roles so they leave. But it's the it's the 80% that you want to win. Because I, I think this is one of the huge lessons from your work. Don't worry. Don't you you won't be liked here. This is not a popularity contest. In a way, the only popular and, and the other thing I wanted to add, and I'd love your opinion on is it's so frustrating. Even those three guys in PNG, even Barry, I'm sure the credit didn't go to them. The credit is dispersed because success has many fathers and mothers. No, actually, I think they didn't get a fair amount of credit, actually. Good. Certainly Good. Barry did. Barry got got, got recognized. Because of you, man, because um, of your book. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, Barry's done pretty well for himself. No, they're all really, you know, smart people. Um the, the people at, uh, the guys at Procter & Gamble, they do a great job putting out videos and help, helpful. Um, one interesting thing, there was a concept for the book. So the guys at Procter & Gamble, they, they went through our online workshop where we had a public online workshop. And uh, there's this one concept we use that doesn't apply in all cases. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And we call it laddering up from a network to an ecosystem. And the example we gave was uh, uh, the civil rights movement, where everybody, you, you say civil rights movement, everybody thinks about Martin Luther King, right? It's the first thing that comes to mind. But he was actually one of, of what they called the big six of civil rights. And these were all different institutions like the NAACP, the Urban League, uh, the, the SNCC, which was John Lewis, um, CORE. And th there was six of these guys, and, and each organization had its own network. But they were able to ladder up from their individual networks to the greater ecosystem, even though they focused on different uh, uh, parts of the spectrum of allies or different institutions in the pillars of support. Uh, and, and, and they were able to share most of their values and they were able to collaborate. And that's one of the things that made the civil rights movement so powerful that all of these groups, they were able, and they, they definitely had disagreements. They definitely had different ideas about things and they had personality clashes from time to time. Um, and not all the civil rights groups uh, were uh, the black Panthers who came a little later was a split off thing, but generally because they were able to, 
to say we share values, we share goals, we can collaborate, not all the time, but we can collaborate with each other. They made each other that much more powerful. And in the Procter and Gamble case, they and and they immediately said, "Hey, there's some other change initiatives within Procter and Gamble. We've been thinking of them as uh, of them as rivals, but they're actually potential collaborators. Let's reach out to them." And the very next day, they uh, they you know at, right after the session, they 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 sent out an email, and within 24 hours, they had meetings with with. Uh, uh, other initiatives that that have uh, have become real allies and have strengthened their 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 movement. One of the great lessons I learned from you, we were messing on LinkedIn during the week where one of your HBO articles, the editor picked uh, birds on a wire and you were like, what the hell does that mean? And I, and I, I always try and wear a pin that reflects some way the show. And I was looking for what I don't have one of a bird. I was going to wear it to frustrate you. <laughs> but uh, I found this one. And it's pretty much a, a network is what I was thinking of. And one of the, the most valuable pieces I took from Cascades, a mental model I took is, you mentioned Stanley McChrystal, and you mentioned it takes a network to defeat a network. And I think that's so often overlooked by the change maker or the head of innovation or the head of L&D, whoever's in charge of change, that they try and do it themselves, or they try and do it in a linear fashion. And you need to connect the nodes of the network. That's the key. That's what I learned from your work. The other important thing is that it is um, uh, it's nonlinear, right? Uh, it's it, you know if if you look at Barry for for instance, it, it started off very slowly, um, and it's going to start slowly. But that but once you get going, it starts going exponentially fast. I love the story of the guys in Serbia where five of them met in a cafe and said, we have to do things differently. Um, and then the next day, six people joined them. And then like a year later, there was, I think, two or 300 that were part of this Otpor movement. In 1999, at that time, anybody who looked at Serbia would say, okay, Milosevic will be, you know, he'll be dictator for life. And then a year you know, so zero to first year, they're two to 300. A year later than that, they were 70,000. Milosevic was uh, out of power uh, on his way to The Hague, where a few years later, he would he would die in his prison cell. So that uh, that's how it can happen, right? It's, it's, it's not, that's why it's so important to focus on your early champions and make and empower empowering them and helping them to be successful because those are going to be your best salespeople and that's how you should focus your time not on the those others who don't like your idea and are skeptical and don't think it'll ever work and and are are are, are probably going to sabotage it stay away from those people focus on on, on the people who want to help you make it work and if i can leave you with just one final idea because this is something we learned to ask in the as as you know uh i don't know if you know this but my favorite chapter in the book is on surviving victory and this is one of those concepts that that really seems to have a lot of resonance again i stole this from my friend sir Jaw, this concept of surviving victory uh but but has no no less so i'm i'm footnoting him but 
really, really seems to resonate because as you said, we've all experienced that, right? That it just seems just when you get, you know, just when you get that first win that, you know, you get that budget or you get that executive sponsorship and you think everything's going to be downhill from there. Uh, that's when it seems like somebody has thrown sand in the gears because those people who hate the idea, they don't just disappear. They don't <laughs> just go home because you've gained your first little victory. We certainly learned that in Ukraine in the Orange Revolution in 2004 and five, uh, which is why there had to be another revolution in 2013 and 14. But it's always about shared values. That's how you overcome, never making it about any particular uh program or person or policy. It's always about shared values. And what we ask people, and this is what we do at the end of our workshop, we ask them, what would an evil person, not a reasonable, nice, decent person, but how would an evil person undermine this change that you seek? And once you start thinking about that, and it's funny because the reaction people get, they say, oh, no, they wouldn't. Well, maybe <laughs> they would. Once you start thinking about that, you're then you're ready to move forward. And that's why the work we do has been so successful. Because we get people, hopefully in the beginning, but even when they're somewhat into it, we get people to sit down and map out where they think the problems might come. And and who are their allies and who are their detractors and and who are the institutions, who are the who are the stakeholders, sometimes internal, sometimes external, who can who actually have the power to make decisions that can move this change along. And once you and, and we eat and, and people leave the workshop with a transformation map which is an entire uh, plan. Obviously, the plan can change. We use sticky notes. But just thinking about where those traps are, uh, that's the first step towards overcoming and avoiding them. And what's been so uh, uh, what's been so gratifying in doing this work is helping people to overcome some of that pain that you and I both know and, and so many others do as well, because it doesn't, a lot of it can be avoided. And, and that's what, I guess that's the idea I want people to, uh, to, 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 uh, I want to leave people with. If you are a change agent, if you are so, uh, somebody leading change, uh, there are going to be people who uh, who are going to take shots at you and they're going to take you down, uh, try and take you down. The thing is, they don't have to hit their target. Right? <laughs> if you plan ahead, right, you can duck behind that tree or that rock uh, and, and, and you can come out and move forward. So, uh, so uh, you know, and, and you certainly don't need to give them extra ammunition. So. Uh, that's that's uh, I, we've been talking so much gloom and doom. I'd like to leave people with some hope because what we found is that uh, people that we really really can change organizations and in some ways a quite quite radical 
uh, uh, initiatives can actually gain traction and, and, and move forward. Where can people find out about those workshops, about the programs that you run, et cetera? Either on my websites, gregsatel.com or uh, digitaltonto.com. Uh, I, I think on, on your show notes, you have the, the 10 principles of transformational change. Yeah. Uh, and Do you want me to put them like, up? Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, put them up. Uh, people find them helpful. Um, and uh, of course, my book, Cascades. Just to let our audience know, I run HR forums with certain executives. We're going to do one together. You're going to be one of our guests of honor someday soon. I'd love to do that. That'll be great. We're also going to jam on Clubhouse sometime. I've been building my Clubhouse muscle silently in the background, but you're there quite a bit. So where can people find you there? We're going to we're gonna jam on Clubhouse. You're going to teach me how. And uh, oh, it, by the way, it won't go out in time for your, for your uh, other one. But let's give a plug to your pl- Clubhouse. We're also going to jam on Clubhouse sometime. I've been building my Clubhouse muscle silently in the background, but you're there quite a bit. So where can people find you there? Just my name, but uh, just a few words about Clubhouse because it is a new platform. The great thing about Clubhouse is that the audience uh, becomes part of the show. So uh, hopefully Aiden and I will get on there together and uh, you will be able to come up and ask us questions and share your experiences. Uh, so that that's something to look forward to. Best-selling author, keynote speaker, innovation advisor, and author of Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. Greg Sattel, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.